Welcome to Texas Veterans Mean Business, a production of the Entrepreneur Program of Texas Veterans Commission. Welcome everyone. I'm Christina Mortel, business consultant with the Veteran Entrepreneur Program of the Texas Veterans Commission. We continue our celebration of Women's History Month with a focus on women's entrepreneurship. In this two-part interview with Jessica Flynn, CEO of Red Sky, we discuss foundational issues that impede and ultimately impact the growth of women business ownership nationwide. Through her efforts with the National Women's Business Council and traveling across the country, Jessica provides a first-hand look at grassroots issues in the areas of access to capital, rural entrepreneurship, and the impact of growing women-owned businesses in the STEM field. As the CEO of Red Sky, a public relations and marketing firm in Boise, Idaho, Jessica Flynn has two-plus decades of journalism and PR experience, advising private and public sector leaders on high-stakes crisis communication. Jessica founded Red Sky in 2008, and has since grown the company from a startup to Idaho's largest strategic communications firm. She's an Emmy award-winning journalist, honored as CEO of Influence, honorary commander of the Idaho Air National Guard Mission Support, and federally appointed member of the National Women's Business Council. Jessica has a bachelor's degree from the University of Texas at Austin, go Longhorns, and we are thrilled she's joining us today to discuss issues impacting women's entrepreneurship. Welcome, Jessica. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. There is so much to talk about, and I want to address the efforts of the National Women's Business Council. But first, I definitely want to talk to you about your own personal experience starting Red Sky. And I just realized now you started it in the same year as the 2008 recession. So, of course, I'm curious, and I would love to hear more about your startup story. Yeah, it has been 12 years this month since we started the company Red Sky. And I will fully admit that had I known what was coming, maybe I would have thought a little bit differently around starting a business. But I'm one of those believers of sometimes out of necessity comes a great ingenuity and opportunity. And that's what it turned out to be. I started the agency with four other communication pros back then. And at the time, I, I would call myself an accidental entrepreneur. I had been working as a communications manager for a destination resort, and my job disappeared, essentially. So this exercise of thinking about what if we were to start our own agency became very real when I needed a job. And when we look at other women business owners and other entrepreneurs, a lot of times it is that necessity that starts you down the path. And that was true for me. My background was in journalism. I have a journalism degree from the University of Texas at Austin. I'm a Longhorn. And while I had a great degree from there, I didn't take a ton of business classes. So over the past 12 years, it's definitely been an MBA and then some learning to run and scale a small business. And I bought out my three other co-founders and the majority owner and sole remaining founder of our firm. And I've gone from being somebody who prided herself on just being a public relations practitioner and a storyteller to being really a proud small business owner. And I love the challenge of figuring it out and the challenging times that are ahead of us will definitely be, I guess, another learning experience as we try to figure out how to keep the business going throughout what could be a downturn again. Well, I do want to congratulate you about being the largest strategic communications firm in Idaho. That is obviously a real kudos to you and all of these awards and accolades that you have. Obviously, you're doing something right, right? So you've been in business for 12 years. You've probably seen so much and really achieved a level of success. And you're right about these strange times. And I just wanted, before we leave the talk about Red Sky, is do you have any thoughts for our listeners, any advice to share that you can relate to about your own personal experience 
uh, that might help some of those who are kind of teetering on all this uncertainty that's facing us? I think it's really important as you think about starting a business, even um, in the times like we're experiencing right now or if you're in the midst of the first year or two years, to always really be clear on your definition of success as a business owner. I found early on that my partners and I, some of the tensions we ran into was that, yes, we wanted to be successful small business owners, but each of us identified and defined success differently. Some of us wanted to have a business that set ourselves up to retire at a certain point. Others wanted to like disrupt the communication industry. And none of these goals were wrong and they were not incorrect definitions of success. They were just different. And when you are defining that definition of success, that also is going to really impact how you make decisions. For instance, right now, I think a lot of small business owners are looking at, can I keep my current staff level? Do I have to lay people off? Well, depending on what your definition of success is and how you've structured your business, those questions are going to have almost like a different framework that you use to help make that decision. So that's one of the things that I always tell other business owners that are trying to start up and think about. And then I think the other thing that really applies in this time for owning and running a business is, especially when you have staff, is really to understand how you balance between being that optimistic visionary and that cheerleader and then that a hard truth teller. Because when we're in uncertain times, you need a little bit of both. You need leaders in your businesses that can say, here's the path forward, here's what we're doing, but also to be honest and direct with their teams. I'm finding that I'm kind of going back to that mantra time and again as I make sure I'm communicating with my colleagues what's going on and what we're planning to do for the future. Well, you raise a good point, too, about that. And now, as the single owner, I mean, you've mentioned before that you had additional colleagues who start the company with you, but when you're alone at the helm, obviously, that makes it a little bit more difficult and kind of reaching out to maybe outside sources or other folks in your network to bounce those ideas off of or gain support when you're having these difficult conversations. Yeah, I've always tried over the years to find different tribes, so to speak, or different peer networks. I have a group of small agency owners across the country, and we got together on a Zoom call on Friday to all share what we're experiencing. And there's people on there from Detroit and Florida and New York City and California, and we all have different but similar experiences. And a lot of times just talking it out helps. And then I also really find that even people in industries completely different from my own have something that I can learn from. So they may ask a question I hadn't even considered, whether that's finding people online through LinkedIn or individuals that you may have known from previous points in your professional journey. Really getting that feedback is helpful. And then, of course, I have to always give some love and support to the Women's Business Centers and the SBA and the different programs that they have. I will fully admit when I was starting up, I didn't access them as much as I should have. And now when I see all the resources they have, I kind of wonder if I would have maybe avoided some of the mistakes that I've made if I had reached out to all the resources that were available to talk to. Yes, I can totally identify with that because I was in the same boat when I started my own business, I realized now I didn't reach out to all those resources at the time. I really, as I was reading through some of the materials, also just reached out mostly to my family members and for other folks in a professional association to kind of help me. And I realized now that if I could have done it differently, I probably would have done a better job of reaching out to the Small Business Administration and all that they had to offer. And I know we're going to talk about that momentarily. But if it's okay, Jessica, I just want to reach out to you, too, about 
your experience now with the crisis communications, this is a challenging time for our government officials and the private sector. With our supplies and distribution chains being disrupted, our daily lives are a little bit disruptive now. Since you advise organizations in crisis communications, how would you assess how the federal government is doing now and the private sector in responding to and communicating on the coronavirus, on the pandemic, and maybe how is that going to change things in the future or what the ongoing impact will be? It has been, I think breathtaking is probably the closest word I could come up with. The speed and pace of which this crisis has unraveled and unrolled and been communicated across the globe. And it's only being amplified by how connected we are digitally and particularly with social media to both information and misinformation. When I was trying to think about what have we experienced even close to this, my mind couldn't find something because the biggest hit that our country and our globe felt in my professional memory would be 9-11. But if we think back to that time and what happened to our economy, we were not connected via social media, via the web like we are today. That environment of how quickly communication is moving and how quickly all of this is moving forward, it demands that leaders of all levels, whether it's at the federal government or local government or private business, that they communicate not only clearly and directly, but consistently and quickly. Because when there's gaps in communication and there's gaps in time in which we hear from our leaders, those are filled with fear and frustration and rumors. And we're starting to see it in different aspects of industries that if a full day has gone by and somebody hasn't heard from a leader in that particular industry, they're making assumptions on things that are or aren't happening. So that's what I would say, I guess, to anybody who's in a leadership role to communicate. It's not enough to just communicate once and answer a whole bunch of questions. You need to have a consistency to it and promise people and keep your promise that you're going to be there communicating at that certain time with certain information. And then the other component is we can have all the facts and the data, which right now we don't, but even if we talk through those facts and those data points and all those numbers, we have to remember the humanity and we have to have empathy to the fear that people are experiencing. And I think any leader at any organization needs to have the ability to combine both sharing those factual information data points, but also understanding they have to speak with empathy and understanding of their audience. And that's really hard to do. And I think we're watching that unfold across our country and across the world as leaders are really trying to walk that tightrope of reassuring people, but also understanding what an emotional impact this is having everywhere. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think it's so important to hear from our leaders frequently, even through the day. I mean, it seems that from the beginning of the day to the end of the day, the news has changed three or four times, or the truth has changed, so to speak, what the latest issues are or what decisions have been made, et cetera. So I think that's really important that we listen. And then I love the point that you make about this is really personal, personal for everybody for both our leaders who have a personal life, but also for all of us who are experiencing this firsthand, whether it be employment challenges or kids, their situation changing. So there's so much to be considered when you're talking about communications. And now more than ever, how important it is that it be out there telling the truth and be more frequent for all of us. So I thank you for that. 
I want to turn our yeah. conversation now to the National Women's Business Council, which I'm really excited to talk to you about, and all of its efforts to help women business owners. Now, a lot of folks may not be familiar with the council, Jessica, and I'm wondering if you could just highlight a little bit for our listeners when maybe the council started, how it was created, and its mission. And I think that will really help us with the rest of the conversation that we're going to have, which is going to be really in-depth. The National Women's Business Council, again, until I was nominated to be on the council and then appointed was not something I was familiar with either. It's been in existence since 1988. And in 1988, there was a piece of legislation passed, H.R. 5050, um, known as the Women's Business Ownership Act. And it did a couple things. So it established the National Women's Business Council, which is the only independent source of advice and counsel to the president, Congress, and the SBA on issues affecting women's business ownership. So it's nonpartisan and it's independent, and it's what's known as a federal advisory council. That was created by that act. That act also created the Women's Business Centers Program, which some of your listeners may be aware of, and I believe there's several women's business centers across Texas. And it also did something else that is just shocking to me. Um, I'm a Gen Xer. That generation squeezed between the millennials and the boomers. The Women's Business Ownership Act in 1988, one of the things it did was it eliminated the laws that required a male co-sponsor for women's business loans. So in 1988, many states still had on the books laws that said, if you're a woman and you want to start a business, you have to get a husband, a brother, a father, some male relative to co-sponsor your loan. Yeah, I was in middle school at that time. So it's just amazing to me to think that that existed still. And that little nugget of what was happening in our history, when I started learning about the council, I'm like, wow, there's times when I think, oh, we've come so far, there's parity, there's no issues. And then I look at some of the data points from the council and I realize, okay, something's still not right if women aren't achieving the same business success that we see from our male counterparts. So the NWBC was created at that time, and it has a presidentially appointed chair, and then it has eight small business owners from across the country. So we represent different geographies and different industries. So I'm one of those eight small business owners. And then we have six representatives from different women business organizations. So we have someone from the Women Presidents Organization. We have the Associations of Women Business Centers. We have someone from the Association for Women in Science. So we have women that represent those larger groups. So there's 13 of us plus our chairperson. And we each serve three-year terms. I just got appointed one year ago this month. So I am coming up on my anniversary here and it's been drinking from a fire hose. I've never done work at the federal level, but I take the role very seriously because it's up to us to gather input, gather research, convene women business owners and entrepreneurs and stakeholders and help connect their voices to policymakers in DC to be able to look at legislation and say, okay, this piece of legislation or this particular policy of the SBA if it's tweaked, if it's kept the way it is, if it has this particular addition, this could help women business owners scale their businesses or more women start their businesses. So we look at a variety of different things, research that we conduct ourselves, research that we get from other partner organizations. Then we host things like roundtables across the country and webinars so that we can hear directly from women business owners across the country to really, I guess, ground truth some of the things that we're hearing and seeing. Jessica, I want to definitely talk about the roundtable discussions that you have had around the country and talk about the three initiatives or the three big pillars that council is working on. I believe there are access to capital, women in STEM, 
and uh, the Rural Women's Entrepreneurship Initiative. And I think it's really important that we try to delve into those individually. First, I want you to tell us, though, how was it that the councils identified those three areas as the areas to focus on? When every council gets seated and appointed and we have our chair, we look at some of the past research that's been done and some of the data points over the past year to two years. The chair themselves, she may have a particular direction or focus. And then we also get input from not only the SBA, but the House and the Senate Small Business Committees, who we interact with quite a lot to help really focus in on what should be the issue areas of this council's term. So that's what happened in the end of 2018, start of 2019 to say, okay, based on research we've done, the data that we're seeing and what we're hearing from Congress and the SBA, these are areas of focus. I am the closest to the Rural Entrepreneurship Subcommittee because I chair that one. I laugh because I live in um, I live in the beautiful capital city of Boise, Idaho, and we think we're a metropolitan area. But for D.C., I believe Boise and all of Idaho is considered rural. So <laughs> that's why I'm, yeah. I'm heading up the Rural Entrepreneurship Subcommittee and bringing some of the ideas and input from women entrepreneurs here to those different policies. That's great. Let's start with the Rural Women's Entrepreneurship Initiative, because since you are so close to it and you are chairing it, and I've actually read some of the documentation that came out from the council, and I guess I was just shocked at what I read. Let's talk a little bit about the initiative itself, and then maybe we can talk a little bit about the states that are considered the most rural, and then some of the challenges there are with the grants. In 2019, we issued a report, and this was from research that was done prior to this current council, but that looked at rural women entrepreneurs and some of the challenges and opportunities. And a lot of what we saw was related to gaps in various types of infrastructure. So it would be gaps in support groups, as in they didn't have women's business center programs in these rural communities or some of these other small business startup support programs. We also saw, and it was interesting to me, about large number of rural women entrepreneurs that are married. And when I looked at that data point, I'm like, where is this coming from and why do we want to focus on it? Well, I know as an entrepreneur, I needed my support system. And while I'm not married, I am in a metropolitan area where I have other areas of support that I can pull from. Well, if we think in rural communities, family is often your closest network of support. So that might make sense to see that. And also what we do see is that a large percentage of women who start businesses do it to resolve work family conflicts, to Mm -hmm. solve the fact that they may need to care for family at home, whether that be an elder family member or children, or they may do it at a necessity because there may not be a job in their area. So that that data point started to make a little bit of sense when we looked at the lens through which we see other women entrepreneurship happening. Also, the lack of access to internet. A lot of times the last mile, when we had conversations here in Idaho, we definitely saw the issues that lack of reliable internet created for these entrepreneurs. Because a lot of times they are selling their goods and services online. And if they don't have a real viable internet connection to do that, that cuts off their ability to scale their business. Some of the other things that we looked at was a larger number of women getting involved in crop and animal production. And what we're seeing here in Idaho is a lot of second and third generation farm families. And it's the daughters who are taking over the businesses and trying to figure out how to scale it in a new world, how to scale it in a place where maybe there's more support for smaller 
farms for different types of farming, whether it be organic farming or otherwise. So you have these young women that are looking at this so-called traditional industry and trying to update it for the current times. And they need support, whether that be from different lending sources or from small business startup groups. I agree. And I've noticed, too, even an uptick in our own community of veterans, both men and women, there's definite interest here in the state of Texas for traditional farming, but other aspects like aquaponics and these kinds of things. So I see the USDA and the TDA really kind of helping to have all these grants and resources available. And our team is really on a daily basis trying to do that initial research to connect that gap between folks that are in the state with these federal resources. That's one of the things we try to focus on to make them be aware of what's out there. So I totally understand the rule and the ag value here or what they're trying to do, taking over family businesses or at least starting a new agricultural business. I do want to just talk about one thing on Rural Women's Initiative, and that was the grant piece. I think I read Mm. that there's significantly less grants available in the 10 states that have the highest level of what we call rural entrepreneurship. My other humor with all of this is the term rurality. It's so hard to say, but that's where these states that have the highest percentage of rurality, unfortunately, have some of the lowest numbers of having women's business center grants afforded to them. When I got appointed to the council last year, Idaho did not have a women's business center. After I was on a few months, we finally got one, and they created almost a new model for the way it was unveiled in Idaho, where they granted two grants, and both of them were put in slightly more rural areas outside of our metropolitan city. And some of the policy recommendations that the NWBC made this past year had to do with looking at these women's business center grants and really pushing for the SBA to think about rural communities more as they allocate these grants to start these centers up. And not only thinking about where they put them, but making sure they're not doubling up on a ton of resources. For instance, there was, um, I cannot remember which state it was, but one of these rural states that we were hoping would get granted um, a women's business center just got one, and we were very excited for that. But then Los Angeles also got one. When you think of the amount of entrepreneurial resources in places like a Los Angeles or like a New York or like Mm -hmm. a Dallas, there's a lot more there than in some of our rural communities. So what we then said is if you're going to put some of these in these more metropolitan areas, can there be incentives or encouragement for them to take those resources and almost do pop-up or um, e-delivery of services to rural communities in the surrounding areas? Can you also perhaps change the way that you assess the success of these women's business centers? And for um, a community like ours, if you were to do a women's business center workshop in Boise, Idaho, which is our biggest community, and you reach 10 people here, that's great. If you were to do it in the community a half an hour away where there's only 2,000 people and you reach 10 people, that's a much bigger impact. So instead of just looking at specific numbers, could you really look at it through the lens of the impact it can have on rural communities? So those were some of the recommendations that we made to the SBA to really tweak these grant programs so that they can reach these rural communities better. Agreed, Jessica. The smart allocation of resources is at the heart of the Women Business Center issue for our rural communities. Thank you.
We end part one of our interview with Jessica Flynn, addressing women in rural entrepreneurship, its challenges and opportunities. In the 2019 annual report, the National Women's Business Council noted the top 10 most rural states in the country that still lack a women's business center or an SBA grant to establish one. Mississippi and West Virginia still do not have a women's business center. Maine, Vermont, Montana, South Dakota, Kentucky, and New Hampshire each have one Women Business Center grant. All have one site except for Maine, which has three. South Carolina and Alaska also do not have a Women Business Center, although both states are considered to be approximately one-third rural. In the state of Texas, we are fortunate to have five Women Business Centers, and they are located in metropolitan areas, Dallas, Houston, Denton, San Antonio, and El Paso. For more information on Women Business Centers, check out the Association of Women Business Centers at www.awbc.org. That's Alpha Whiskey Bravo Charlie.org. Thank you for listening to the Texas Veterans Mean Business Podcast. I'm Christina Mortel, business consultant with the Veteran Entrepreneur Program. 